The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. If 20 formative years of your life involve a major terrorist attack, two recessions, exorbitantly expensive and unnecessary wars, tangibly worsening inequality, climate emergencies, and incompetence during a global pandemic, it might make you think things aren't good. Hi there. Welcome to Students of Mind, the mental health podcast made by curious minds for curious minds. On this podcast, we the hosts are just like you, eager to learn more about the mind. Here we learn with you and provide you with clear, concise information backed up by real experts about all things mental health. My name is Jade. And I'm Sarah. In today's episode, we're joined by Dr. Sarah Lipson, who will give us some information and insight into the effects that the current coronavirus pandemic has had and is having on college students' mental health. So today's guest is Dr. Sarah K. Lipson. She is an assistant professor in the Department of Health Law Policy and Management at the Boston University School of Public Health. She also is co-principal investigator of the Healthy Minds Study and associate director of the Healthy Minds Network. Dr. Lipson received her bachelor's degree from Tuft University, her master's from Harvard University, and a dual PhD at the University of Michigan in Health Services Organization and Policy at the School of Public Health and Higher Education. Dr. Lipson's research focuses on understanding and addressing mental health inequalities in adolescent and young adult populations, especially college students. Her work has been featured in the Boston Globe, New York Times, Huffington Post, and on NPR. In light of the current pandemic, Dr. Lipson has been working with colleagues to research and collect data related to the pandemic and create a database with their findings. Welcome, Dr. Lipson, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Yes, me too. So we're all trying to stay busy during shelter in place. And uh, I saw on Twitter that you were updating your, your house by, up, uh, by uh, adding some molding. How is that going? Oh my gosh, my favorite topic of conversation. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I, I'm so fortunate that I uh, bought my first home uh, this year. And so Congratulations. I Thank you. Um, I moved in mid-March. And so it has just been the best project to have to just design my home. It's my favorite creative outlet. It's, it's brought me so much joy. So yeah, so now I have a, an elaborate scheme to add um, some kind of intricate, like you might think of kind of Victorian uh, crown molding in my bedroom. And I've purchased uh, many tools. And I don't actually have the skills to do this, but I've watched many YouTube videos, and I'm going to take it on and, and see where things go. So I'm really excited. <laughs> That sounds awesome. So beyond being an awesome house owner, you are a leader of the Healthy Mind Study, which is a prominent study. It goes to all sorts of colleges and collects data on the mental health of college students. So what is sort of the mental health of college students like uh, typically, even before COVID? What do you know about that? Yeah, yeah. Um... So I can say a couple of kind of 
broad general statistics and then we can drill down if you have uh, follow-up questions. I'll, I'll say something about prevalence and then I'll say something about trends, which are kind of two ways in public health that we think about things, like how prevalent is something that hasn't been changing over time. So in terms of prevalence rates, um, about a third of students, so one in three uh, students on college and university campuses has symptoms of an apparent mental health problem. So that includes depression, anxiety, eating disorders, or students who report non-suicidal self-injury or suicidal ideation. And the most prevalent of those are depression and anxiety. In recent years, anxiety has surpassed depression as the most prevalent. But overall, about a third of students are meeting criteria for one or more of those conditions that I just mentioned. Um, it's also really important to talk about the fact that there's a group of students, about 40% of students who are flourishing. When we talk about mental health on college campuses, it's so often just talking about the negative. Um, Pre-COVID, our data from the Healthy Mind study from about 300 college campuses uh, showed that about 40% of students are flourishing. They're doing really well. They're thriving. Um, and we have a scale that, that measures that in our survey. So that's prevalence. And then in terms of trends, we have really, and this is, this is really troubling, we have seen over the past 10 years and, and even more acutely over the past three to five years, a sharp increase in the prevalence of mental health problems, uh, about a doubling in the prevalence of depression and anxiety over that time, decreases in, in flourishing. Uh, so some really you know, concerning trends that we could that we can get into and, and kind of try to explain some of the factors that, that go into that. But those are the two biggest takeaways. What do you think is the reason for the uh, for the increase in prevalence? Yeah. Um, so that's the million dollar question. Uh, it's definitely multifactorial. And I'll give some examples of ways to think about this that that can hopefully frame our conversation. So one is we're talking about mental health more often. So I, I oftentimes people will say, is it really an increase in prevalence or is it just you know, more awareness and knowledge of, of mental health? It's a yes and. So all, so all of the factors I'm gonna talk about, I think are contributing to this increasing uh, prevalence. And part of the problem is we're not entirely sure which one contributes the most. I am quite confident in saying that there has been you know, a, an increase in the severity and in the, the mental health problems that students are facing. And uh, we've also seen an increase in knowledge um, and awareness and, and just a national dialogue around mental health. So that's a really good thing, um, which might lead more students to, you know, recognize that they're, that they're struggling. But the, the counter argument to that is we're measuring in the Healthy Mind Study symptoms of mental health using these validated screening tools. And we're seeing marked increases in these, in, you know, symptoms of depression, for example, um, that are, that are measured in this really objective way. And we would expect that uh, mental health, you know, more, more subjective measures like loneliness or, or hopefulness would be, um, if, if we weren't seeing changes there, then we would say, you know, maybe this is just around uh, students' knowledge, um, but, but it doesn't appear to be that way. So one is, is around, you know, increasing awareness and national dialogue of mental health. Um, social media and technology are often pointed at as factors here, and it's a double-edged sword. There's a lot of opportunities in responding to mental health that will involve uh, certainly technology, mobile technology. 
there's some sort of what you might think of as like sociological explanations for this, like, you know, the parenting styles of, of young people, young people who are now in college and, and who are their parents and how are they being raised. Um, and then there's sort of like a, a geopolitical or sociopolitical perspective on this, um, which is just young people today, the traditional college age, like 18 to 25 year olds. If we think about the the history of, of those young people's lives, of your young, your lives, you have, you know, have reasons to be really fearful and really anxious. And, and it's, it's sort of a logical human response to, to be, to be struggling with, with exactly what we're seeing students um, struggle with. And I guess it could be a little bit more clear about that. I mean, things like 9-11, climate change, um, school shootings, now, of course, the pandemic and kind of how that is unearthing all of these social determinants of health. Um, uh, I've heard the term eco-anxiety used, you know, young people who are just so fearful of, of uh, about, and rightfully so, about the, the fear of, of climate change and how that's affecting their mental health. Um, and then there's the college environment. So that's another aspect of this. We've, we're really in this 24 seven, when I was in college, which is not that long ago, um, my library, the library, and I went, yeah, you mentioned I went to Tufts as an undergrad. Um, it wasn't open 24 hours a day. That wasn't, you know, the system wasn't in place to, to encourage students to be, to be working nonstop. And, and all of these things interplay together. So social media creates, you know, peer comparisons and, and who's working harder, who's partying harder, who's having the, this, you know, idyllic college experience. And if, if I'm not, what does that mean? And, um, so all of these things really come together. Those, those are some of the key factors that we talk about a lot. You mentioned, um, this isn't a follow-up, this is just a point. I was watching your seminar that you did um, with a few other professors, and you talked about this quote that kind of like summarized how all of the stuff kind of like our generation has gone through with like 9-11, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and now this and how all of that, like no wonder we're feeling such intense and overwhelming emotions. So I think that's something that's really good to just acknowledge so people can kind of be okay with not being okay and that a lot of people around them and in the same age group that they are, they're not feeling okay too. And um it doesn't make you like abnormal or anything. It's like very valid. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I can read a, a quote that uh, that I saw, you know, this was, I think I saw this sometime in March as a lot of campuses were closing. And I just, even though I'd thought about each of these individual factors and that cumulatively that is the, you know, life experience of someone in their early 20s, seeing it in this really succinct uh, way, this was on Twitter. So it's, you know, 140 characters, but um, it says, if 20 formative years of your life involve a major terrorist attack, two recessions, exorbitantly expensive and unnecessary wars, tangibly worsening inequality, climate emergencies, and incompetence during a global pandemic, it might make you think things aren't good. Um, and that that is really, uh, I, I kind of have a, a starting point of, of trying to, to meet students with that understanding of, of like, that this is really hard. And especially as, as I'm at Boston University and as we were closing campus and we were moving to online classes, just starting my class every week and, and saying like, this is, this is really, really hard. Like this, 
you know, in some ways I was kind of speechless about it, but just um, recognizing that I think is important for students. Yeah, definitely. Um, you talk about, you know, your students, they're usually between 18 and 25 with, you know, a lot of outliers there. The age range in college is actually pretty broad. Um, but the majority of college students are probably from 18 to 25. And I was wondering, um, developmentally, you know, we tend to think of college students as adults, but we know this isn't strictly true. The brain doesn't fully develop until you're about 25. What are college students going through developmentally between 18 and 25 um, that might put them at risk for mental illness or, you know, open them up to new experiences that isn't necessarily true for the rest of the population? Yeah. Um, so I will speak about this more from an epidemiological perspective than a, a kind of neurological perspective, just based on my training. Um, but the traditional college years, you know, like late adolescence, early adulthood, um, directly coincide with the age of onset for lifetime mental illnesses. I became interested in, in the topic of mental health on college campuses through a lived experience. I was working in residential life at a university and, and so, you know, living with, with students really involved in their day-to-day -day lives. Um, and I saw multiple students really experience their first symptoms of, of, you know, serious mental illness. I had a student who had her first psychotic break. The, the fear of that, the, the, just how scary that was for her, having never experienced this before. You know, many students experienced their first major depressive episode in college. So, so we know epidemiologically that this is a, an age when students, when, when people are um, experiencing the first signs or an intensification of mental illnesses, then there are some exceptions. So anxiety has a little bit different of a kind of trajectory and epidemiological vulnerability. Um, and eating disorders as well. Eating disorders can often onset a little bit earlier um, in adolescence. Um, but then there's the transition to college, which is kind of a, a life shock for, for a lot of people, particularly if you're living on campus, which is not the majority of students. It's, it's a big group of students, but it's not the majority but just, you know, the transition from high school to college is this really big transition, a big life transition, a whole new peer group. Um, and that creates, you know, vulnerabilities as well as opportunities. And for students who are living on campus, you know, at the age of 18, which is very unique to the U.S. context. Like if you talk to people in other countries about their higher education systems, it's not common for 18 year olds to just like move across the country and live by themselves and be, you know, thought of as kind of autonomous beings. And in some ways, I think that's a, it's a kind of unrealistic expectation to place on students. Um, so coming to college, I mean, you think about your diet changes, your exercise changes, your peer group changes, your sleep behaviors changes, all these things that are predictors of mental health change when you come to college. And so that is another way in which, you know, mental health will kind of manifest alongside the college environment as a kind of a pressure cooker for a lot of students. You talked about transitions being sort of uh, something that can be really hard for most people generally, and it'll take away a lot of stability that people, especially people with mental illnesses, you know, sort of rely on. Um, what what do you expect to see with the transition of all all these students and people who aren't in college, people who are just moving? You know, college students have to move out of dorms back into houses they thought they might never live in again. Um, you know, people all over all over the country, all, all over the world are 
moving in with relatives, moving out to keep their relatives safe, um, a lot of transitions everywhere. What do you think the effects of that are going to be? Yeah. So I think that's a great question. And it's exactly the type of thing that, that my Healthy Minds research team is looking at um, are you know, major changes in housing as a predictor of mental health, major changes in financial stress and caretaking, like you mentioned, and how that correlates with mental health. So I can say one thing anecdotally, and then I can say a little bit from Healthy Minds data. So anecdotally, I know that in the class that I taught this spring semester, the majority of my students were living in a, you know, in a different housing situation, some in different states um, than they were when we started the semester. Um, and that's, you know, that's just a, a, you know, kind of like head spinning experience uh, for students. I also mentored a couple of undergraduates. I teach primarily graduate students, but I mentor some undergraduate students and just hearing their experiences. And um, one of them stayed on campus and one of them was, you know, back living with her family and what, what that was really like for them and, and just not being able to, you know, have the college experience that they, that they thought they were going to have when this semester started. And then a little bit from Healthy Minds. So we, we've just um, conducted, we run this, this study, the Healthy Minds study um, every semester at college and university campuses. And it's, Sometimes I'll say like the study in a, in a way kind of runs itself. It's been going for so long and it's, um, you know, this important needs assessment that colleges and universities will implement the survey to understand mental health on their campuses. And then suddenly, like everything, uh, we, you know, we're like, we really need to rethink what we're doing. We, we're going to change the questionnaire. Um, so in March, we developed a new set of questions that we implemented. So we have data from students that have participated in the Healthy Mind study from March through May of 2020. And we just wrapped data collection last week, um, at the end of last week. So we actually have a meeting tomorrow uh, to kind of go over the analysis plan. And we'll be coming out with a data report on that, which I'd be more than happy to, to share with all of you. Our, our you know, very preliminary analyses, I'll just talk about kind of patterns, show um, an, an additional spike in the prevalence of mental health problems since March of 2020 compared to data that we collected from September 2019 through February of 2020. And yeah, enormous changes in students' living situations and in, in financial stress. And we're going to be looking at how that correlates to, to mental health. So that's, that's a little bit of a stay tuned question. While I'm thinking about this data, though, I also want to mention something that I think is really important. Um, we added to our survey questions about discrimination. So like, have you experienced, particularly we were interested in Asian and Asian American students experiences of discrimination in light of COVID. Um, and we saw that over half of students had witnessed some form of race and or ethnically based uh, discrimination in light of COVID. Um, and 75% of those students said that it was targeted towards Asian or Asian American students. So this is really something that I've been trying to emphasize in initial conversations with college and university campuses is just this new vulnerability, particularly for Asian and Asian American students and, and ways that campuses, I think, really need to be rallying behind, behind all students, but in particular, uh, Asian and Asian American students have been the victims of discrimination. Wow, that's, uh, that's pretty incredible. It's really hard to hear.
Okay, so we're going to kind of step back and look at things at a broader perspective and look at the pandemic as a whole. And in your opinion, what specific aspects of the pandemic are causing these changes in mental health? Yeah. So one of the most important predictors of mental health is sense of belonging and social connectedness. We are social creatures. We, you know, derive so much meaning and sense of purpose from the relationships that we have with people. And I've seen this frame different ways. You know, we're, we're leveraging mobile technology. I, I feel like I'm connecting with both of you, you know, in this digital format right now, but it's not a replacement for sitting across from someone, seeing their body language. And, and in particular, just, you know, college campuses have such an energy to them, um, you know, being on campus and, and seeing your peers and faculty and staff and on many campuses, athletics and student organizations, all of that, you know, we're, we're trying to replicate in some ways being remote, but it's, if, if we're being honest, and I think it's important to be honest with students, like we're not going to be able to replicate that, those magical, you know, kind of college experiences and that energy is, is just not possible um, if we're, if we're joining remotely. Um, so, so sense of belonging, um, and the kind of the, the flip side of that being like isolation. I think there's a loss of of belonging, and I think it's particularly important to think about that with incoming students. Like, what does it mean to be a first year undergraduate who's going to come to a campus? How do we foster a sense of belonging? How do we make them feel like they're part of this campus community if they're not physically here? And then the flip side of that being isolation. Isolation is one of the most important risk factors for negative mental health outcomes. So people who are just not connected to others, people who feel lonely, that's a really big risk factor. It's also a risk factor for kind of other related outcomes like substance use. So that's something we need to be really concerned about right now is um, you know, people who struggle with substance use and addiction, that this is in some ways kind of a, a perfect storm for, for them to have a, an acutely stressful situation, a pandemic, um, and to have some of these social supports uh, really kind of severed. So I think that's that's a piece of it. I think the academic pressure didn't disappear. I, I was really happy to see some campuses move to say, we're going to be super flexible. We're, we're getting rid of grades. I've heard counters to that student saying, you know, like I was going to do really well this semester. I needed these grades to to boost my GPA. Um, so I have sympathy for that as well. But the academic pressure didn't really change, even if the grading policies changed. And so students are now, you know, dealing with trying to have Wi-Fi connection, living from home, many students having kind of unstable housing situations and trying to finish out the semester. If you really step back and think about it, it's kind of preposterous that we were giving students grades at all, given that the, just the situation that we were all in. Uh, but most schools, I think, did kind of proceed with grading. There was a survey conducted uh, by some colleagues of mine at an organization called Active Minds. Are you guys familiar with Active Minds? They're um, a mental health advocacy organization that run, they support chapters or student groups on campuses across the country. I think they're in over 500 college campuses now, including uh, community colleges. And they support you know, student leaders, student advocates for mental health on college campuses. And they conducted this survey and the biggest stressor that students reported was was over their grades and whether they were you know gonna gonna you know meet their you know goals and in, in terms of their academic performance and to me that's really really hard to to know that that was still something that students were just so 
so preoccupied uh, with in this pandemic. There's a lot we could say about that, like how have we created a society that that really supports learning versus achievement? Uh, but that's maybe a slightly different uh, topic. But but anyway, so that stressor didn't go away. So, sense of belonging probably decreased. Isolation probably increased. And then, like we talked about, housing, financial stress, all of those factors are are very much kind of related to mental health in important ways and, and definitely affected by the pandemic. Yeah. So. Um... Like you were saying, all of the aspects of the pandemic that are affecting um, our mental health is, are also the major risk factors for college students. So do you think that we're in a mental health pandemic in parallel with the coronavirus pandemic? Or do you think it's like not at the, that severe level yet? Um, well, so... Not to be a, a total public health geek about this, but we, if we break down pandemic, uh, so pandemic implies global, right? We're actually collecting some data through Healthy Minds with an international cohort of colleges and universities. So that may be able to speak specifically to a pandemic of mental health in, in college populations. Um, if we think about an epidemic in, in the U.S. or in you know different parts of the country, um, Absolutely. I mean, I think Andrew Cuomo um, of New York, Governor Cuomo, was one of the first people to kind of really start putting that name behind it to say, like, this is going to be a mental health pandemic that we're facing right now. And mental health is it, it kind of lags in, in time. Like, you know, we're not we don't we don't see it right away. The outcomes are not as stark as physical health outcomes, certainly as you know, COVID and infectious disease. But we have seen, you know, in light of other, you know, major kind of national traumas like 9-11 and Hurricane Katrina, Hurricane Sandy, there's been a lot of public health research showing how mental health was impacted by those, you know, major traumas. And in all cases, very strong evidence to show increasing prevalence of mental health in response to that. And I think we're, we're already going to be able, we're already being able to see that in our Healthy Minds data that we're going to be releasing in the next couple of weeks. We're going to provide a little bit of evidence towards that. And then it's going to be the next year of data collection with Healthy Minds and for other folks who are doing research on college campuses related to mental health. Um, it's going to be really, really interesting. I'm I'm really excited to see this uh, this data that's coming out, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, um, it's very interesting to have, you know, like I said, I became interested in this topic through working in residential life. And then was like, you know, I have all these questions. I'm, I'm really thinking about this. And, and then realized like, oh, these are research questions. How does one pursue research questions? Oh, one gets a PhD. I guess I'll do that. And when I started doing this research, like I would tell people I studied mental health on college campuses and I'd get, you know, some nods or, you know, maybe a little bit of like, oh yeah, like that, that you know, that seems like an important topic. And now it's like, everybody knows that mental health on college campuses is this really important topic. There's been so much media attention uh, around mental health. So I'm really trying to think about how we can use Healthy Minds data to help drive a conversation that's um, that's really around how do we promote wellness on college campuses? And, and for me in particular, how do we promote equity? How do we not, you know, forget about students of color, gender and sexual minority students, first gen, low income students who are just talked about less in this you know, increasing national conversation about campus mental health. 
Um, I just want to backtrack kind of quickly. You've mentioned residential life a couple times. What is that? Oh, great question. Yeah. So I, um, I was um, a proctor, which is like a live-in uh, residential staff member. I lived in a first-year residence hall. I had 30 students. And the job is described or the role is described as being, I think, three things. So you are creating a, a sense of community. I was throwing like study breaks and, you know, more like social events, disciplinarian things like breaking up parties if I needed to, dealing with like roommate disputes. And then I had a small role supporting students' academics. So I knew if they were, you know, struggling, they were, these were first year undergraduates and, and trying to support them in that way. But really what I say is that all three of those role parts of the role were so small in comparison to feeling like I was basically an untrained mental health professional. I felt like that mental health was by far the most important uh, determinant of students' experiences in that first year in terms of student success, in terms of the relationships and connections that they made. So yeah, so residential life is anything from like an RA, a resident assistant living in a residence hall, a resident director, which is typically like a full-time um, staff person, sometimes a graduate student. In this case, when I was a proctor, I was a graduate student at the time. And then there's typically like a dean or a director of residential life as well. And they're in charge of all of the residence halls and all of the on-campus uh, living. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, great question. <laughs> So, you know, looking looking at all the data we have and looking um, at the fact that our whole world has changed sort of overnight, are there any sort of symptoms of mental illness or just symptoms kind of generally, even if they're unrelated to a specific diagnosis of mental illness that we're seeing a lot right now that people are reporting a lot? Yeah. Some of these questions are, are just super helpful for me to be thinking about the ways we're going to analyze the data that we've collected uh, from March through May. So I can only kind of speak to kind of like preliminary analyses, anxiety, symptoms of anxiety, and then worries about the future. Maybe I'll step back. And since I know your, your mission with this podcast is to be educating students, I'll just say a little bit about what anxiety is kind of inherently, which is a fear about the future. It's a fear about the unknown. It's projecting and it's very kind of future oriented. And so you can understand how a pandemic would, would really kind of exacerbate feelings of anxiety where we're so uncertain about what the future is going to look like. And particularly like in March and April, I mean, every single day just felt like new information. And it was just, we would say like anxiety provoking. It's kind of the, the perfect storm of being anxiety provoking. So we've certainly seen increases in anxiety. I have hypotheses that we're going to see increases in substance use and really problematic substance use. And I'm really worried about students who've been in recovery and have been managing that and, and for whom this has really um, been a huge setback in that regard. Then when we think, and you've done a really nice job, I think, in, in your questions and in your syntheses of my long-winded answers of saying kind of like, we know these things that affect mental health, there, there's mental health outcomes, and then there's the, the things that drive mental health outcomes. And when we think about financial stress and housing stability as, as important drivers of, of well-being and mental health, 
and who is most likely to experience financial insecurities and, and housing insecurities. I'll, I'll play this out for one group of students that I care a lot about. So trans and gender nonconforming students are much more likely to, to not have you know, parental support. Of course, many do, and that's amazing, but, but many don't, and, and lack a, a permanent home that they could go, to, go back to. So when a, a residence halls close on, on campuses, you know, trans and gender nonconforming students may be less likely to, to be able to go home to like, you know, loving parents and they're, you know, bouncing from home to home or they're staying on campus and feeling really isolated in that way. Um, so in public health, we'll oftentimes talk about kind of pathways or we'll talk about downstream and upstream effects and, and housing we would think of as, as kind of a, an upstream determinant. Like if, if you take away people's housing, if you create instability there, then downstream, we're going to see poor mental health outcomes. It really creates a lot of vulnerability in that regard. And so, so students who are experiencing housing insecurity right now are, are one of the groups that I'm really worried uh, worried about. Um, I know it might be too early to have an answer for this, but have you noticed anything in the numbers about how many people are experiencing mental health challenges for the first time since mm. like the pandemic? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is a really, really good question. I'm gonna I'm gonna answer this from like a study design perspective. Okay. Um, so one of the coolest ways to, because it's very, you know, it's difficult to randomize. Like it, it, when we're looking at the impact of something like how has COVID-19 um, impacted mental health outcomes, we're not going to be able to randomize people to different exposures in this regard. We're not going to be able to do a randomized control trial. So the interesting way to do this is sort of to compare groups pre and post. So we could look at, you know, a certain group of students and say, um, you know, pre-COVID, we saw, you know, no, this proportion of students that were flourishing and had positive mental health, no symptoms of depression and anxiety, and then kind of control for, for some of the demographic characteristics looking at a, at a group post-COVID, and then say how many of this group of students with the, these shared characteristics that did not have any apparent signs of mental health symptoms have signs of, you know, struggling with depression, anxiety, suicidality after the fact. So I I don't know quantitatively what proportion are are kind of new symptoms of mental health. And there's some challenges with how we, how we measure that because college is this really big transition. Much of the data that exists, you know, don't really link back to like what are students experiencing kind of in high school. But there are opportunities with kind of these causal inference study designs to to try to really hone in on the effect, uh, the impact of of COVID-19 and campus closures on mental health. And I think we need a little bit more data. Usually those study designs will require a little bit more. I think this, this coming academic year will give us the data that we need to be able to really answer that. Okay. Well, yeah, I'm super excited to see everything when it's done because I have talked to a few of my friends who said that this is the first time they've ever had these symptoms of anxiety and depression and in a way I feel like that's almost even more scary because like it's the first time 
you're dealing with the fact that there's this global pandemic and now all of a sudden you're getting this like scary feeling that you've never felt before. Um, so yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing your findings and seeing how we can use it to make improvements. Yeah. And, and a point related to that is accessing mental health services. So because the college years coincide with the age of onset for lifetime mental illnesses, it's this really important opportunity for early intervention and, and getting people into treatment. The median delay from first symptom onset to treatment contact is about a decade. So most people are struggling for about 10 years before they ever receive services. And in that gap right there are all of the negative sequelae that we know. So, you know, involvement in the justice system, suicide, certainly a lack of, you know, economic productivity. There are so many individual and societal level outcomes that we should care about in that gap right there. And so right now, if you know, you're mentioning, you know, friends who are like, this is an entirely new thing. I have never, you know, dealt with anxiety in this way. And now the responsibility falls to your friends, to your peers, to seek out mental health services if they feel that's necessary. So I think that's one of the most important things that campuses can be doing right now is to acknowledge this is an extremely stressful time, normalizing experiences, kind of putting words and names to symptoms of anxiety and depression, normalizing that, saying that you're not alone, and then saying, here are the services that are available to you. And there are free mental health services. There are online resources that any student can, can access. There's certainly a lot of imperfections in the mental health services system, but seeking some form of support is, is really key. Uh, key in that for students who are experiencing these symptoms for the first time. And that's a great way to transition into my next question, because I wanted to know what you think can be done to mitigate the effects that the pandemic could have on college students' mental health. And I'm wondering what can professors and faculty do to mitigate those effects, but also what can the students do to help themselves? Right. Yeah. So I think a lot about this and I talk about this a lot with, with my colleagues. So what can campuses be doing? We actually just co-authored a, a brief with the American Council on Education that was the, the target audience for this brief is, is college and university presidents. And we outlined, you know, here are the steps that, that campuses need to be taking. And one point is around clear, consistent and compassionate communication with students. Another is around assessment. We need to be assessing students. We need to understand where, they, where they're at right now as budgets on college and university campuses are going to be even more kind of strained. Any investments in mental health need to be backed up by evidence. We need to know that any, anything that we're, we're putting there is really going to reach students and, and, and meet the needs that they have. And we only know what needs students have if we ask them. So... So I think right now is an extremely important time for colleges and universities be, to be doing needs assessments of their students and then to be really relying on those data to inform their decision making. So that's sort of at a system level. And then you mentioned what faculty can do and what students can do. I think faculty have kind of an outsized role in, in students' minds in terms of their importance and how much students kind of look to faculty and worry about how faculty think about them. 
I try to really kind of normalize and, and, and really be a person. I'm a person. I finished graduate school quite recently. Like I'm, I'm imperfect. My, my favorite example of this, and, and you can cut this if you want, but is I tell my students that when I hear the term meal prep, I run, I run away. If you looked in my refrigerator, it looks like an adolescent boy. I do not have my life fully perfectly together. I love research. I'm super excited to teach, to learn, to, to have this role with you, but do not enter this classroom thinking that I am this perfect person who has everything together because I'm not. Um, and I think that message from faculty in whatever way they're comfortable expressing that is really important. I know I had a lot of conversations with, fac with faculty colleagues this semester who would say, you know, I told my students how difficult it is right now to be home with my young kids and, and how I'm just not able to concentrate. And I didn't even realize how important that would be to them, that when they heard me say that I was struggling too, that they, you know, then opened up and, and suddenly, it, you know, created this whole dialogue. So I think, you know, being real and, and being open about uh, your own experiences as faculty is, is really, really important. Grading flexibly, creating open forms of communication. We don't know what the fall is going to look like. Are we going to have either a second peak or a second wave? And what is, what is that going to mean for classes being held and in what format and, and in grading? And faculty are kind of at the whim of, of what the university decides, but, but they also have a lot of agency to, to say, like, I'm going to be flexible in this regard and I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. And, and I think that's you know, really, really important. As for what students can be doing, students need to be involved in all of this, which is really, I think, challenging at a campus level. Like students are not on campus right now, and yet they need to be a part of all of these conversations and task forces and emergency preparedness and all of that. I'm acutely aware of any time I'm in a room where people are kind of like talking about students as this like other being. Like we're on a college campus. There are plenty of students. Why is there not, you know, one, two, three of them in this room with us right now? So I think that's really important. Students need to be in like these, you know, Zoom rooms, so to speak. They need to, they need to be there and campuses need to create opportunities for students to be able to, to share their voice and their experience to guide what schools are doing. I don't know. What do you guys think that that's that students can can be doing to support one another? I think the most important thing that we as students can do is to be there for each other and to be, you know, you were talking about faculty being sort of open and honest with what they're struggling with. And I think that that's actually true sort of across the board, just connecting person to person, hearing that anyone from, you know, your barista to your grandmother, to your teacher, to other students hearing about their struggles is is going to bring your own to the forefront and make that more acceptable and, you know, allow you to express what you need. And I think that, you know, creating a space to do that in is, is vital to get through these times and return to any sense of normalcy and work through the problem. Um, but I also think that, you know, students need resources. And so sharing with your friends when you find mental health resources is also really important. And if you're listening as a college student, you know, please make sure to check out the resources that your campus offers or, you know, that your city offers that, you know, that and anything you can find that is helpful to you works. That's, that's all you need. It's, it's not as hard as it might seem. Yeah, I feel like the major thing, at least for our age group is just loneliness on top of anything else that you're struggling with can just make it 10 times worse. So I think 
the aspect of connecting with other people is really important. I just think it's really important to try and improve the parts of the situation that can be improved and that we do kind of have some control of because there are a lot of aspects of the state of the world right now that we can't do anything about and we just have to play it by ear. Yeah, yeah. I think those are really good points. Yeah, so you mentioned some things like all students can be doing, all students can be reaching out to one another and, you know, checking in. Students who are really struggling right now, certainly students who are in crisis, there's a lot of resources. Crisis text line is one that maybe you you can include in your resources for students, and that's a fully text-based system where you can, you know, write in and, and chat with a crisis volunteer who's trained and they can also refer you to a lot of different resources that way. So yeah, there's there's so many. I guess the, the ultimate message, both in terms of connecting students to resources and from hearing from from you know your peers, is kind of like you know you're not alone, which I know might sound kind of trite, but it is important to to hear that. And and I find myself often thinking about that as well. Like I I I'm not alone. I'm, I'm you know this is such a shared experience in a lot of ways, um, which is reassuring. Yeah, I think that's also something um, acknowledging that this is really, really scary. (laughs) Everything that's happening is scary. And I think sometimes we have the impression that we need to be like strong and we shouldn't be phased by anything. But everything that's happening right now is scary and it's nothing like anything we've ever been through before. So, yeah, I think professors and faculty acknowledging that they're scared too and like they're struggling too I think that would also be helpful for students just to kind of humanize the professor a little bit more and make that another source of connection for the student mm-hmm. yeah yeah we're, we're launching a new research project this fall surveying faculty about their experiences talking about mental health with students intervening and their attitudes and knowledge and kind of openness to further training to be able to support students. Because I think right now, and certainly in the fall semester, faculty become one of the only people who kind of lay eyes on students. I was really aware of that as, as we moved to online. Like I'm, I don't know that my students have seen anybody else at Boston University besides me this entire week. And it's been another week since we, you know, we have my class meets every week and every week I would think, I don't know if they saw anybody else at this university in the meantime. And so faculty right now play a really, really important role in, in supporting student mental health. Yeah. It's uh, the point of point of contact for students, you know, the people that they actually see versus the entire administration and organization and institution that, that are all working together to sort of facilitate them just showing up at classes, you know, from a, from a faculty perspective, it's kind of, I, I find that faculty often forget that students don't see any of the, any of the mechanisms behind that. And something that, you know, students need to remember is that there's a lot of people out there trying to support their success, actively spending their entire day thinking about what they can do to make students' lives better. And students need to remember that those those people exist and go find them because they can help too. Yeah. Dr. Lipson, you are a, you know, fantastic interviewee. Thank you for, you know, joining us. And, you know, we'd love to sort of make sure we're, we're you know, really doing you justice. You put a lot of effort and, and time into studying and making yourself an expert on this. And we don't want to just kind of skim the surface and be like, bye. So is, is there anything, you know, interesting? Is there anything 
you know, that you think that people should know about that would be that, that you want to just talk about? It doesn't have to be strictly related or it can be strictly related. It's hmm, a good question. I guess maybe I'll like kind of a meta point in doing this research on college student mental health. I have realized how many students are are super interested in this topic. I mean, there, there's just such a lived experience with, with mental health and students have a lot to say about this and a lot of questions. And I have the opportunity to work with students on my research team. And so I would just encourage students, you know, we talked earlier about the potential of a mental health pandemic that's, that's following from this. If we even step back even further, like I think of, you know, young kids right now who are at home and kind of not having these developmental experiences that, you know, you and I had probably in, in, in schools. And so there's going to be a need for, for studying mental health and for mental health practitioners in the future. And so I would just encourage people to think about that and say, like, and do I, do I have a passion for, for studying mental health or for, for thinking about mental health? And I actually think a lot of students really do. And, and also in, in public health, and there's a really big space in public health to be thinking about mental health in population. So one of the things I'm, I think, most optimistic about is that young people are going to say, like, of all the things I want to study, I want to study public health, and I want to study mental health, and I want to study infectious disease, and these things, and policy, and these things that we know really, you know, impact human experience. And so uh, I just, just a positive note to say that I, I hope young people will do that, and, and I hope people will pursue that as, as their careers and as their education. Great. I, I think that's a great place to end. And I also want to ask, how can we and also our audience stay updated on the work that you're doing and then also the work that the Healthy Minds Network is doing? Yeah. So you can follow me on Twitter, Dr. Sarah Lipson, Sarah with an H, and then healthymindsnetwork.org. Um, we have a listserv. We send out um, emails with of our latest uh, research updates, including when we publish our, our COVID mental health uh, data in the coming weeks, that will go out to our full listserv. So those are probably the best ways to, to stay in touch there. Great. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. Thank you both so much for doing this. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Students of Mind. We'd like to thank Dr. Sarah Lipson again for being on the show. And please make sure to follow her on Twitter at Dr. Sarah Lipson and visit healthymindsnetwork.org for more information about the Healthy Minds study. I'm Liz Winter and I have been a medium and a spiritual development teacher for over 30 years. On my podcast, All Aboard the Medium Ship, I want to share the message with you that there is a wealth of love and comfort available to you from the spirit world. 
On my podcast, you can experience this comfort and peace for yourself through gentle guided meditations and helpful messages. Make sure you subscribe and follow so you never miss an episode. Part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network.